the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we're lucky to be joined by Rob Bertrand. Rob and his lovely wife own and operate the Northwest Escape Experience, where they have an amazing D.B. Cooper-themed escape room. Rob is deep in the vortex, though. He's on the forums, he's consumed all the media on the topic, he's been to CooperCon, and he's got a really exciting new project in the works that I cannot wait for you to hear about. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Rob Bertrand. All right, Rob, how did you first hear about D.B. Cooper? Well, I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. And um, I I think the first time I ever discovered D.B. Cooper was in a gossip magazine. My mom used to love those like tabloids you get at the grocery store in the checkout lane. Uh, There was one called World Weekly News. And so I was just thumbing through one of those because I always liked the crazy, weird stories. And that's where I discovered an article on Cooper. And it, it just really caught my attention because it happened in my hometown. Um, and then, of course, uh, Unsolved Mysteries. Everyone's my age got their start with Cooper in, uh, in that very first Unsolved Mysteries, the two, the two part with, uh, with the uh, Florence interview. It was so captivating. And, of course, Robert Stack's voice, it just sinks into you. Do you mind me asking how old you are, Rob? I'm 44. 44. So you're nine mm-hmm. years older than me. So, because I watched that Unsolved Mysteries probably, uh, you know, in reruns when I was five years old or something. Oh, no, I saw it live uh, the moment it aired and it was just like, oh, yeah, that story. And it just stuck with me ever since. I've always been fascinated by it and I always seem to come back to it somehow. Yeah. And it being a local story, I'm on the same page, is is so much better because you're like, oh, I know that town. I know where that is. Sure. I've been to that airport. I've, I've stepped on that carpet. <laughs> and you eventually opened up your own business in Vancouver. I did. How soon did you think you wanted to incorporate D.B. Cooper into that? I always knew that I wanted to do an escape room on D.B. Cooper. And so when we first decided to open an escape room business, we had two ideas. One was a horror-themed fictional story, and the other was D.B. Cooper. And we decided to go with the horror theme first, simply based on the amount of space we had to tell the story. Um, Because I I had a vision of what I wanted that D.B. Cooper room to look like, and I just couldn't pull it off yet. So we waited, and I'm glad I did, because the space we have now, it just works perfectly. And you were kind enough to let uh, me and my kids run through that during COVID. You know, who knows when you're listening to this, but... Uh, not only was my family in Denver, Colorado, and Rob's in Vancouver, Washington, uh, but he was able to pull it off it, to have people do it remotely 
And it was a really, really good time. My kids still talk about doing that. Oh man, that's what it's all about. I love to hear that. And I was looking at some of the reviews from people running that escape room. And one of the things I thought, because when I hear a virtual escape room, I'm kind of like, eh. But when I read some of the reviews of it, one thing I thought was really interesting is people doing it that aren't in the same place. Like a lady doing it with her mom and her mom's in Florida and she's in Kentucky. So it's really interesting. We obviously we started it as a live action experience, right? Like the whole point of uh, me opening an escape room business is I wanted to get people off the couch. I wanted people to you know get together and play a game that was fun and educational and something that just kept that D.B. Cooper story going. And unfortunately, you're right. COVID hit and we were shut down for over eight months. And um, we just decided, look, we've, you know, who knows how long this is going to go on for. We've got to figure out a way that we can continue to do this for one, so we can pay our bills, but two, just to keep that story going. So yeah, we turned it into a virtual game. Um, and I'm happy to say we, we were able to reopen. So we are live again and we're offering both. So if you want to come in and play it in person, you can. If you want to book it and hop online with your friends around the world, even you can do that and play it that way. And either way, you're going to have a wonderful time. Yeah. And especially if you're listening to this show, um, you would be way into all these little uh, secrets and Easter eggs that Rob has hidden in the in his D.B. Cooper themed escape room. I got such a kick out of some of that stuff. Yeah, it's I really packed it full of Easter eggs. You're right. If uh, if you're a fan of the actual story and have dug into it with any amount of detail, you'll get a kick out of some of the things you'll find in there for sure. Oh, absolutely. And I've run into you, Rob, at a couple of the D.B. Cooper conferences that we've had the last few years. That's right. Yeah, that's we first met at one of those, right? Yeah, in person. Definitely. How has that changed your opinion on the case, if at all? Uh, you know, it was really interesting. I got, I dipped my toe in um, with the escape room, and that was it. I mean, I just got sucked right into Cooperland. You know what I mean? Like, um, I, reached I do out know to, what you mean. <laughs> I reached out to Bruce, and he was such a, a warm, caring dude, and just always has the time to talk to me. And so it really. I just decided, you know, I've got to get into this deeper. And, um, and so I started going through the forums and, and I'm more of a lurker. I'm there like almost every day, but I don't post much um, simply because I don't like to get caught up in the drama that happens a lot. And you know what I'm talking about. There's a I, lot of really, I, I do. I, I'm there multiple times a day and, and don't, and hardly <laughs> ever post. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a lurker and I'll pipe in every once in a while, but uh, mostly I just watch and learn. And there's a lot of great, smart people that are involved in this. Um, and there's so much to learn. I feel like I'm still learning every day. Yeah. It, it, it's never ending. I mean, there never seems to be an end to this. All right. So you have a, a pretty big, exciting project, but I'm going to, I want to hold that for a little later while I harass you about some of the, uh, Typical D.B. Cooper questions we've got Absolutely. to see uh, where you land on some of this stuff, Rob. Okay, let's see. hit me up. Let's do this. Is the flight path accurate? Ooh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't think personally that the flight path 
is accurate. Um, I think that, uh, I think Eric is probably a little bit more accurate. I think that they probably flew a little closer to Tina Barr. Okay. So then, which leads me to my next question. You probably assume the drop zone is a little too far east then as well. Absolutely. It just, to me, it makes more sense, especially with where the money was found, um, that Cooper came down a little closer to the river. The river that splits Oregon and Washington basically curves and then heads north. And I think uh, a wise hijacker would probably want to land closer to that river, one, because it's easier to escape. Yeah, the the water landing is something that's tricky. I had uh, Matt Lamadou, a Navy SEAL, PJ, smoke jumper, all-around badass. He's If he said if he was going to do the mission, he would plan to land in the water. And then you talk to yeah. Mark Metzler who has, you know, 55 years of skydiving experience and night jumps, water jumps, everything. And he said, I would never plan a water landing. So I think uh, if like, you're planning a water landing in November in this area, I think you're risking your life for sure. Like it's just, it's just wouldn't be smart to jump into the water in November in this region. Well, it wouldn't be the first time he's risking his life that night. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Does he survive the jump? I think he absolutely survived the jump. And I think um, I think where he buried that money was a distinct message to certain people that were involved in this case. So not only does he survive the jump, but you believe the money at Tina Bar is a plant. I absolutely think that it was put there on purpose, yes. As a nod to the money he offered Tina. Mucklow. That's that's a good as theory as any. I I think that uh, that I don't know. I don't think he necessarily left the money there um, as a message to Tina, but I do believe it was a message that I survived. I mean the uh, Tina Bar, Tina Mucklow. That's quite a coincidence. It's one thing I've always wondered because you know there is that he hands her the money out of the bag, and yeah. And she refuses it. So is that a wink to Tina Mucklow? Hey, I tried to give this to you once before. Yeah, right. I think you're. Uh, I think you're right about that. I think it's a, a distinct message. You know, he pulled that money out of the bag and offered it to not just Tina, but to uh, the other flight attendants as well. It's kind of a, you know, I'm a sorry I put you guys through this, and they made a joke of it and said, "Sorry, we can't accept tips." You know, it's company policy. But uh, he ended up sticking that money in his coat. He didn't stick it back in the bag. And so when he jumped, uh, you know, it's possible when he landed, he he took that money out and just he left it. He left it as a message. Like, I hit the ground. I'm still alive. And uh, you guys aren't going to catch me. Let me talk to you about that, Rob. Why you're risking your life for this money. Let's say you, you personally. Rob is going into... The, the Bank of Vancouver, Washington, and you're robbing it, and you see a nice gal working the counter on your way out with your money bag, do you reach in there and throw her money? I mean, if you're risking your life for this money, why be so cavalier about it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, and it's one thing that I discovered in my research that's not covered very well at all, is the time that Tina Mucklow spent with Dan Cooper. What do they talk about? What uh, you know? What kind of questions did Tina ask him? 
And to me, I feel like there was some sort of relationship built of mutual respect, maybe not admiration, but of, of respect. You know, he, uh, Tina said that he was respectful and he was never dirty or foul mouthed in any way. He was just completely respectful. I think there was some sort of relationship during those few hours they spent together, some sort of mutual respect. And, uh, and I think when he jumped, he, he really did want to leave a message and say, you know, I, I lived. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we, we only know a couple things about what they said to each other. You know, oh, Minnesota's nice country. Yeah. That Tacoma down there. They're just a handful of nothing nothing things that he says to Tina. It's a black hole in the transcripts that's never really been investigated. Um, and sure, Tina's given a few interviews, you know, two uh, interviews in the FBI 302s that I've seen. And then um, she's come out of the uh, woodwork recently to do a few more interviews, which is really exciting. But I don't feel like anybody has really nailed down the definitive Tina Mucklow interview. And Darren, maybe that's your job. I'll give it a shot. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know, like, Tina, what was going on in your mind? Um, There was a really great Rolling Stone interview where it kind of gave a few tidbits, but I want more. I need to know more. What was she doing that day? Like you got up and what, did you have breakfast? Did you, did you roll into work thinking it was going to be just a typical day? What was your relationship like with the rest of the flight crew? You know, what was that dynamic like? Those are the things that really interest me. I would be really interested to know what life was like after. Cause I, I mean, I think it was just like constant harassment and people talking to her about this. And it's, it's something that did happen to her over a period of, you know, five to eight hours one day, but she wasn't, she didn't choose to be involved in it. And to have the rest of your life, like that's what people want to talk to you about when you had no influence over the situation. You didn't even want to be there in the first place. Yeah. I could see that as being just terrible to be known for something that you were just there that's definitely a life altering moment. And one thing that I really am impressed by is the fact that she didn't let that moment define her life. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of people that would have just, they would have become a media whore basically and tried to make as much money off it as possible. And um, nowadays she probably would have been on every TV show interview that's, that's out there. But back then she's just like, nope, I just want to live a normal life. She continued to work for Northwest Orient for an additional 10 years afterwards. She didn't do any interviews. She was always helpful with the FBI, but she just she just tried to live a normal life. And I just don't think normal life was ever going to be possible for her after that moment. Yeah, definitely. One, one of the things I like the most about Tina Mucklow, and I hope you're listening to this, Tina, is Florence gets the note from Cooper. And this is my interpretation based on uh, what I've read and everything. It it seems like Florence kind of loses her loses her cool and can't keep it together. And then Tina sort of steps in. Hey, I'll take care of this. I'll go sit by him. Yeah, she's a, a almost a reluctant hero. Yeah, and she never gets credit for that because Florence is the one that took the note. Tina chose to step in. Yeah, Tina saw that Florence was not up to the task of the moment, and she really rose to the occasion. 
certainly did. She even stayed on the plane after all the passengers were let out. You know, and I, uh, that's another thing that really intrigues me, Darren, is there's a moment somewhere during that skyjacking where Tina stopped being a, a scared flight attendant and became a hero. And um, that's one thing that I've really focused on in my project that I'm working on is, is telling Tina and that flight crew story in an accurate and entertaining way. Do you think part of that was because Cooper was able to put them at ease? Because they say immediately after he was never mean, he was friendly, he was polite, you know, they usually don't say that after you've been hijacked or bankrupt. So do you think Cooper had the ability to put them at ease? I think, you know what? I think the exact opposite happened, Darren. I think Cooper went in to an unknown situation, desperate enough to do anything to get that money. And the flight crew, especially Tina, is the one that kept that situation cool, calm, and collect. They never gave Cooper an opportunity to get too upset. They kept him calm. And I think Tina was able to read his feelings and his emotion and kind of navigate the situation to keep everything safe. And I've thought a lot about this. Um, And there was one thing that Captain Scott's daughter said at the last CooperCon that really stuck with me. And I think about it a lot, man. She said he had a saying, there's the right way, the wrong way, and the sky way. And man, that's what they did. They did it the sky way. The captain, the crew, Tina, they stuck together and they made every right decision possible. When they're being influenced like, hey, maybe you should bolt down the stairs and run uh, or you know, maybe grab the, grab the stew and make it out the, uh, the window with the, the cockpit ladder, they always pushed against drastic decisions and went with the, the right decision. You know, Cooper never broke his word. So there's no reason to put the airplane, the passengers, and the crew at risk. They did it the Skyway, man. Well said, Rob. I feel like clapping after that. <laughs> I I haven't heard anyone put it quite that way. Um, and I, I'll definitely be thinking about that for a while. You You make a great point there, especially with how just airline employees carried themselves at the time. Yeah, yeah, you're right. One thing that I absolutely hate hearing, and based on what you've said so far, I'm sure you're going to be on the same page. Rob, was the flight crew in on it? Absolutely not. Uh, There's just one, there's just no evidence to suggest it. You know, none of those um, people quit right after the skyjacking. They all continue to work uh, for years and years and years afterwards. Nobody made any big uh, purchases. Nobody raised any suspicions at all. So no, I, I have no feeling that the flight crew was in on it whatsoever. Was D.B. Cooper real or was he made up? He was never on that plane. Was D.B. Cooper Loki? Absolutely. <laughs> no, of course he was real. Yes, he, 
you know, there's there's been a lot of discussion and there's a ton of suspects. I'm not a suspect guy. I don't focus my attention on who I think it could be. Um, although I, I will be honest, I read everybody's theories and I love it. <laughs> Every suspect is interesting. <laughs> uh, I'll never stop doing that. I just don't, I tend to focus more on the actual heroics of the heroes involved. Uh, you know, like I said, the flight crew and, and, but there's so many more people, you know, there's the, the men and women on the ground at Seattle working tirelessly to find that ransom, you know, the money and the parachutes and, um, you've got Owen, uh, detective Owen McKenna, who's racing around Seattle, picking up the money from the bank. And you know, all these people are under tremendous pressure, knowing that there's all these people sitting on a plane on the tarmac in Seattle. Um, just imagine that all these people working tirelessly to try and track down this guy's ransom and, uh, one wrong move and boom, it's over. Do you think that it's possible Cooper stayed in the airplane and did not jump and hid in the airplane. When it landed in Reno, he somehow walked away. You know, anything's possible. You know, I would never say no, but, uh, you know, that plane was searched pretty thoroughly afterwards with, uh, with humans and with dogs. And I just don't see that being possible. I'm of the belief that the easiest answer is the right answer. And I come from escape rooms, so I'm into puzzles. I get it. Like, I tend not to want to overthink the evidence. And uh, I usually follow Occam's razor. The, the easiest answer is the right answer, man. He, he jumped. He wanted those parachutes for a reason. And uh, he jumped. Did he jump where they say he jumped? I think so. Uh, could he have potentially jumped somewhere else? Sure. But, um, you know. I think the evidence suggests that he did jump. What about his bomb, Rob? Was that real? That is the million dollar question, isn't it? Like, um, now I've built a replica version of that bomb. Like, so I kind of understand how easy it is to make it look real. I, I personally think if you're desperate enough to get on a plane to skyjack it for a lot of money, you're probably also desperate enough to die for it. So my personal feeling is, yeah, it was probably real. I like that you said that. It's a bold statement not many people go with. I was of the mind, like 99% bombs fake. And then uh, Shana Roth wrote this true crime book where she made the example of all it takes is one person saying, I don't think that's a bomb. That's not a real bomb. And then you're totally screwed. Yeah. But on the other hand- how many people are going to question a guy who says I have a bomb when you're on an airplane? Especially these young 20 something flight attendants, right? Like he chose the perfect people to terrorize because they're not heroes. They're just young ladies trying to earn a living. Uh, and he knew he had all the power. He knew he, those, those, um, the, the pilots weren't going to come out. Uh, he had everybody in the perfect position. Nobody could even sneak up behind him. Yeah, and my favorite thing about the bomb is the description because it is a cartoon bomb. It is, if you were watching Bugs Bunny and he had a bomb in a briefcase, it would look exactly like what Florence Schaffner described. Yes. I mean, the only thing that's missing is, you know, the alarm clock with the bells on the top of it. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and a roadrunner zipping by. But yeah, I do wonder about that. It's... 
And the fact that he took it with him, why? If it's fake, you could just leave it on the plane. Like, who cares? My my gut feeling is that that briefcase had another use other than the scare factor. You know what I mean? Like, he, he may have had some other things, items uh, in there that helped him with his with his jump. Who knows? And and let's not forget, and nobody really talks about it in interviews. He also had a Manila, a Manila sack. What was in there? You know, what was that all about? I I plan on bringing that up because you did bring it up in your uh, your other project here. We'll talk about in a sec. Mm-hmm. There's two sketches, Rob. Two primary ones. There's you know what seven total, but you have the Bing Crosby sketch and the Cary sure, Grant classic one. Yeah. There's also one that uh, looks like Dan Rather, in my opinion. Dan Rather, which one's that? The angry it- looking one. Yeah, I mean, there's one. I don't know if that's the one you're specific or specifying, but there is one where I'm like, that looks rather like Dan Rather. <laughs> Do you think the fact that they released two sketches that are pretty different hurt the case? I think it it, it may have at the time because it's rather confusing, right? Like, especially when it just happens and it's fresh in everybody's mind. Which sketch do you go by? And and let's let's be honest. That sketch is very vague to begin with, anyway. Um, obviously, look at the amount of suspects we've had. They all look like the guy. I mean, uncanny. And maybe that was by design. Maybe Cooper did that by design, just to, to blend in to the public. Or the public did that by design. I mean, you talk about forty to fifty-five year old dudes in 1971. They all look the same. Absolutely. Yep. Business suit, hair parts to the right, maybe a little pomade in there. And, and that's that. Like that was the look. Yeah. Smoke, drank, potentially yep. had military experience. Oh yeah. That's every dude in 1971. Absolutely. <laughs> Rob, why is this case still unsolved? I think it's unsolved for a multitude of reasons. Uh, I think, I think one Cooper saw a uh, an opportunity. He saw a uh, a weakness, and he created a plan and then attacked that weakness. And um, he knew full well that there was no type of security, and he showed the world how easy it was to take a weapon of any kind aboard an airplane at that time. And he knew there were probably going to be uh, copycats. And he knew that the window of opportunity would eventually close. And so he struck at the right moment at the right time. And, um, and here we are. Like, I also think that the, uh, you know, a lot like Bruce, that the FBI botched the case from the get-go. They didn't get boots on the ground searching for Cooper for almost 48 hours after he jumped out of that plane. You know, they, they lost multitudes of evidence. You know, where those eight cigarette butts go? Um, they collected all kinds of fingerprint ev- evidence. Where did that go? Wh- how? Wh- it's just, it's interesting. Too many hands in the kitchen, man. There was just too many hands cooking and not enough people really keeping a close watch on that evidence. Such a shame. Lesson learned though, right? Hopefully. <laughs> not to mention the fact that, uh, you know, they, they, they work so hard to, photocopy this money right through the record act um all these serial numbers and yet nobody really was checking serial numbers back then 
So that money could have easily slipped back into the, uh, the public and nobody would have been the wiser. What do you think it would take to solve this? I think you're going to need hard evidence. You know, like I, I'm not of the belief that you're going to solve this by focusing in on uh, deathbed confessions and, and mysterious suspects. I think you're going to solve this with actual boots on the ground, hard evidence. We need to find that parachute. We need to find that money. Now, if you got a suspect um, that tells you he's D.B. Cooper and he hands you a 20, case closed. Like, that's it. It's going to take that money. And it's got to be out there somewhere. Somebody, like, if I were Cooper, I'd be proud that I pulled this off. And I'd probably keep a 20 just in case. Um, you know, who knows? Oh, 100%. So if you got a grandpa... If you got a grandpa out there and he was alive during that time and maybe he had some military experience, maybe he had um, some parachute experience, check his attic. <laughs> Get up in there and look around. If you had to place a bet, is Cooper alive today? Oh, I really wish he was alive, but I, I personally think that the secret went to his grave. I don't think he died during the jump, like I said before, but I think him being alive would be a miracle today. Uh, you know, I mean, you saw he smoked like a chimney on the plane. That's not healthy, obviously. Um, my guess is that he's probably passed by now. Yeah, I uh, my my six year old boy told me once. He's like, Dad, I know that DB Cooper is dead. And I was like, Oh, really? How's that? He said, He was a smoker. <laughs> there you go, smart kid. <laughs> Will this ever be solved? Will it ever be solved? Do we want it to be? I mean, for well, me, that's it's a different bad for question. Business. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's bad for business if it's solved. Well, well me too, uh, if it I could consider be, this a business. It could be solved, yes. I think it could be, but it's going to take somebody coming out of the woodwork with actual hard evidence and not a, a feeling or I know my dad was D.B. Cooper, my grandpa was. Um, you know, foggy memories are not going to solve this case. Hard physical evidence is going to solve it. Do you think there is a person, a handful of people out there who know exactly what happened? Other than the flight crew? Um, Other than Cooper? Yeah. I mean, we all have family. I mean, Cooper wasn't just a loner that lived in the mountains. and Well, maybe he was, but I don't believe he was just a loner that lived in the mountains. He had a mom. He had a dad. He, he, he may have had some siblings. Um, and who knows? He might have children out there that we don't know about. And uh, that's where the biggest shame for me comes in, like that we we lost those cigarette butts. We don't have a clean DNA profile that I'm aware of. Um, and uh, you know, part of me is like, man, they caught the Golden State Killer because somebody put up some DNA from the crime onto a DNA website. You know, they tracked... A, a distant relative to the Golden State Killer through uh, 23andMe or some website like that, right? Hasn't been done with Cooper, and it's a shame. That is a shame. But what if that did solve the case, but the guy died in 1987 and no one knows anything about it? That, to me, would be so much worse. Yeah. To know that it it was, you know... Billy Job, Billy Bob Smith that did this, 
but we're never going to know any of the details, the planning, when he yeah, pulled his right. shoe, when his boots hit the ground. Sure. That's a, that's a very interesting story that we'll probably never hear. Oh, that don't say that. That makes but, me so you know, sad. At the same time, you know, the other flip of the coin is, is that he's still alive, um, live and well, resting with his feet up in Jamaica, uh, sipping a, a, a bourbon and seven, you know, like, and maybe, maybe someday he will come out of the woodwork. If, and I've always had this feeling, and I've talked with Eric about this, especially about his, uh, uh, about Sheridan Peterson, is that. I always thought if we could find the guy, but know that he's not willing to admit it is to appease or appeal to his sense of history and be like, look, there's been so many people that have come out of the woodwork and claimed to have done this job. Don't you want to accept the legend that is yours before you go? Don't you want to come out and say, yeah, I did this. And here's why I just, to me, if I was that man, I'd want it to be known before I pass. And I'd want to do it before I'm on my deathbed. So people actually take me seriously, but that only works Darren. If they come out with hard physical evidence, here's the 20, here's my parachute pack. You do the numbers. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I want to know exactly what happened so bad, Yeah, but yeah, I guess it seems kind of unlikely we'll uh, we'll get to know at this point. But here's what I am willing to offer. If somebody is listening to this and they know exactly what happened, I'm willing to record it and hold on to it until you die, and then I'll release it. So, Cooper, there if you you're go. listening to this, I got your back, man. And Cooper, you got a free escape experience on me, pal. <laughs> Anytime. You just, you just call me up. Rob, why have so many people confessed? I think... I think the public over the years have really glommed onto the fact, uh, not fact, but they've glommed onto the, the idea that Cooper was a hero, that he was a Robin Hood of the skies, if you will. And so people want to take that success and, 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 and be revered as the legend himself. I, I think that uh, similar cases have happened in the past, you know, Great example of that is a guy that claimed to be William H. Bonney, you know, Billy the Kid, that um, that he made a deal with the sheriff Pat Garrett to let him live, and and somebody else died and took his place in that grave, and he went on to lead a different life outside of cattle wrestling and gunslinging. You know, I just think people they find these heroes folk heroes whatever you call them and they just want to be recognized and loved for something incredible i think that's really what it boils down to i i can't see myself doing that though not everybody is that way you know not everybody's that way i i like to equate it um to to some older gentlemen that i interviewed back in my college days I was talking to a gentleman about his experiences in World War II, specifically in the German front. And his stories were amazing, but they were also maybe peppered with a little fiction just to bolster the story and make it seem even that more incredible. Um, One of them was a time when uh, this gentleman stated that he was under attack and and single-handedly took out a German tank by climbing it and throwing a grenade down the hatch. 
Did that happen? Maybe. Could it have been a fanciful story too? Certainly. Um, but I think people, they want to be a part of history. And if they can be the hero, they're going to try. Not everybody, though. I certainly wouldn't do that. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, it, in the that area, you know, Clark County, Cowlitz County, I've I've talked to a million people who know who D.B. Cooper was. Oh, it was this guy who used to live down the street from me, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm sure you've heard the same thing. Yeah. But so few of those are even worth, you know, asking a second question about. Because I've heard so many of them. And and, yeah. and in that area, everybody does have a D.B. Cooper story. Um, I just had well, one come over out of a certain the age. One of my employees, um, his uh, his girlfriend, his last name is Cooper. And um, we were having a discussion over dinner one time. And she actually told me that her grandfather, who has a military background, who has parachuting experience, was actually brought in and questioned as a suspect. Now, he, uh, he had an alibi, so he was released. But it's just, it's so interesting how close you can be and how many people were actually interviewed as a suspect. To me, that's fascinating. Oh, everyone with a U.S. parachuting license at the time? It's, it's crazy how the FBI really had nowhere to go, so they just thought, well, we'll look at everyone. Well, and you got to think back then, um, parachuting, like how many people were truly doing that? Like, it's not like today where you could just run down and do a tandem jump um, just because you feel like it. Like back then, it was definitely a, a, a more of a niche hobby, I guess you would say. Oh, definitely. Why did he choose the name Dan Cooper? Wow. So many different theories about that. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the European comic book, um, comes to mind, um, which I have an Easter egg in the escape room for. I'm not sure if you saw that on camera, but it's just, I don't think there's any rhyme or reason as to why he chose that name. It's just a generic name, Dan Cooper. It's a, it's like John Smith. Almost. It could be almost anybody. Um, did it have deeper meaning? I just don't know. I just there's no evidence to suggest other than the parachuting comic book from uh, from France and, and Canada uh, to suggest there's any other meaning. Okay, now I'm angry with you, Rob, because okay, the the Dan Cooper comic connection is something that I'm just so fascinated in. Are you telling oh, yeah. me if if I rob a train and then I shoot webs out of my fingers to escape from there? And the name that I used to board the train was Peter Parker. Do you think that's a little on the nose? I almost feel like it's a joke. You know what I mean? Like if it was based on that comic book, and I don't think you're wrong, Darren. I think that I think the comic book is kind of a, a subtle funny. I think that um, a man with potential military background that has potentially traveled the world um, maybe seeing one of those comics probably thought it was kind of cute. Even if he does it as a joke, I like that as well. Sure. Yeah. But I just, there to give a fake name and to land on one that has such an insane coincidence to the crime, I, I don't even think I could calculate the odds on that because there's an infinite number of names. It's like, how do you choose that one? If you don't pull it from the comic book, 
how do you come up with that? You just run through the phone book, and then you get uh, and then you get going on on the media um, snafu where they dub him DB or or Cronkite's mistake DA Cooper. That that one didn't stick, but there was a man in Portland whose name was DB Cooper that had his door kicked in <laughs> because of this. Um, it's just interesting, like. Where did that name come from? That's one of the biggest mysteries. It comes from the comic book. I want to believe that. <laughs> I want to believe the, that too. It's the best. It's the best part of the story. Like, um, it, it it's got to have meaning, and that's I think what all of us Cooper fans uh, really want is we want the story to be true. We want these theories that we've worked so hard on and poured so much passion into to be true. Yeah, and. You know, I like you said, I'm not a suspect guy because the case itself is already more interesting than than anything I could think of. And it really did happen. And and one thing that I, I'm just not a fan of, although I've been I've promoted their theories, is that Cooper was the Zodiac killer or that he oh, yeah. committed these other crimes. And I feel like there's a need to make it more exciting than it really was by combining these unsolved crimes. And I just, I don't see a need to do that when the case itself is already, in my opinion, one of the craziest things that's ever happened. Well, and and at that point, you're just grasping at straws, right? Like you're just, you're just seeing patterns where there aren't any, what do they call that? Paradoia? I don't know. There's, there's a technical name for it. Where, um, like EVPs, you know, like you hear something on a recording and your brain tells you what it's saying, but it could be saying anything. There's just some connections are a real reach, if you ask me. Why are there so many suspects in this case? I think there's so many suspects because the real guy was such a mystery and he was so good at covering his tracks not to leave any clues behind. His only mistake was leaving those cigarette butts. And, uh, but of course in those days, like DNA wasn't a concern, like that wasn't really on anybody's mind. Right. So I, I, I could see the oversight of leaving the cigarette butts as a, as a casual mistake, but he, rec- he took his note back that he gave to the flight attendants to give to the pilots. He got his note back. He got his envelope back. He, he, made sure he took his matchbook um, and who knows what else he did. You know, did he wipe down the seats, to try to get rid of fingerprints? Did he, did he uh, take his cups that he drank his booze from? Like there's just, he didn't leave much to go on except for his tie, which there's been countless speculations on with the titanium and this and that personally, as fascinating as the tie is, there's been so many people over the last 50 years that have handled that tie that it's really, for me, hard to take it with anything other than a grain of salt. Does that make sense? Definitely. I, I mean, I just to, to put a pin on that, I just I think there's so many suspects because it's, it was left so open-ended as to who he could have been. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Do you think that DB Cooper, okay, you have to bet you have to bet your life on this one, Rob. Is okay. DB Cooper one of the suspects that we are talking about already? 
boy, there's some pretty good suspects and uh, I'm not going to name drop any because I don't want to get attacked by anybody. (laughs) (laughs) There's some pretty interesting suspects out there, but my gut and my intuition says no. I I think that D.B. Cooper was a ghost, not in the real sense, but like any government spook, he was a, a, a literal ghost. Like he disappeared into the ether and we'll never know or see who he was again. Uh, I just think, I think he really probably enjoyed the fact that there was a lot of different suspects out there. It was a, for him, probably a really fun game. Oh, I've always fantasized that he was reading the books and going on the forums and, and going to the parties, right? Like and going to the parties. <laughs> I, I, um, there's a gentleman in town that I live in here in Vancouver, Washington, that owns the, uh, a really wonderful local theater in downtown Vancouver. It's where the last uh, Cooper convention was, right? Kiggins. And Kiggins, yes. Thank you. I, I didn't know if I could name drop, but Dan and yeah, Kiggins. Kiggins Theater. Great place. Everyone should check Love it, it out. Yeah, please support the guy. He's he's amazing. And he, he made a really fun radio drama. Um, that I got to witness live and right in the middle of the program at a really important part, somebody shouted out, I'm Dan Cooper. I'm sitting right here. Of course the show went on and everybody kind of laughed and, but it really got me thinking is like, man, that really could be Dan Cooper. Wouldn't that be the kick? Wouldn't that be awesome? Sitting here with us right now, watching a radio broadcast of the most important moment of his life. And nobody knows who he is. Yeah, I've I've always fantasized about that. I always picture him like sitting by the fire reading Max Gunther's book, D.B. Cooper, right. What Really yeah. Happened, uh, with a bourbon and soda, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> and, and look, if he needs a ghostwriter, I'm here for you, brother. Like, hit me up. We'll, we'll write your memoirs and we'll get it out there. And just like you said, like, if you don't want to publish until you pass, then, you know, we'll, we'll write a contract. We're here for you, Cooper. All right. So we got, oh, let me ask you one more. Sure. You have to, you have to pick one of the existing suspects. Who do you back up? Who's your favorite? Oh, well, you know, this might be controversial. Um, and I, I've got two that are my two faves and the one that really got me into it and God, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but it was Kenny Christensen. You um, shouldn't be embarrassed. I, I got into this through Kenny Christensen also. My okay. first book was Skyjack, and it led yes. me immediately into purchasing Into the Blast. Exactly. And uh, I was lucky enough to meet Robert Blevins in person. Uh, I've never met him in person, but we've shared plenty of, of emails and, and talks. And, and um, you know, my hat's off to him. Like, he's put some incredible research into his book and and um and i think kenny is a very interesting guy and like i said earlier uh all suspects are interesting and kenny's got a great story his story is pretty fascinating the fact that he worked for the airline that was hijacked as an international um purser you know uh spent some time uh in and around that area lived in the area had a, a very fascinating house with a, a hidey hole up in the attic. Like there's just interesting parts to his story. Um, again, there's no hard evidence, um, which I think it really needs to really seal the deal. Sheridan Peterson, on the other hand, is another 
fascinating subject um, who obviously just passed, God rest his soul. He had a very fascinating life, journeyed all over the world, was very cagey, almost enjoyed the cat and mouse game with the FBI. And even himself came out and said, yeah, I should definitely be considered a suspect. I could have done it. His ex-wife even said, yeah, he definitely had the skills to pull this off. And most importantly, he had a grudge. And to me, that's very telling. Um, did he do it? We will never know now, unless as his children or family are going through his belongings, find that $20 bill. But wouldn't that be something? That sure would be something. The Yeah, you have to keep at least $120 from the from the hijacking because they knew the serial number. So it's not just another 20. Sure. It's obvious evidence that you pulled this off. Right. Yeah. Uh, a ticket stub, um, a, uh, um, the matchbook, um, the parachute container, you know, there's all kinds of evidence out there. That briefcase, where'd that go? Is it out there in the forest? It's deteriorating with time or is it in some old man's attic? as a keepsake souvenir that eventually be discovered. Only time's going to tell. Yeah. I think about that briefcase. Like, did he tie it to himself? Do he keep it with him? Do he just throw it out of the back of the plane? I, uh, I often wondered, and this kind of goes back to the briefcase and the bomb itself. And did it actually have a, was it real or did it have a purpose? Uh, I've read some reports and some people theorize that the uh, that it was actually road flares and that maybe he used those road flares as a light on his descent. Feasible. And in fact, I seem to remember, and, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, I think I remember reading in the 302 somewhere that somebody in the Vancouver area reported some sort of flare dropping from the sky around the time of the jump. You know, so is that true? don't know but it is intriguing oh yeah okay rob so you've got your northwest escape experience going you're falling deeper and deeper into the db cooper vortex <laughs> it's more like a bear trap you, know, <laughs> like you step on it and you can't get away and you decided you wanted to uh do another project with cooper would you mind telling us about that so yeah, I am. Uh, I've always worked in the entertainment industry. Um, uh, from the moment I graduated high school, worked as an actor, as a writer, producer, director. I've spent some time in radio. Um, I've kind of I've kind of done a lot of things, jack of all trades, if you will. And uh, one thing that's always really bothered me is there hasn't been an accurate telling of the movie. I mean, there's the Treat Williams movie with Robert Duvall um, called The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, but that only deals with the hijacking in the first five or ten minutes. After that, it turns into a Dukes of Hazard road trip. I haven't seen that in a while, but does it even deal with the hijacking at all? My recollection is the opening for the movie is him jumping out of the plane. It really is. Like The first few minutes is about that. It doesn't go into much detail about the hijacking at all. And then, yeah, it just becomes a weird road chase movie. Yeah, he's. I remember him like drinking a beer and driving a pickup truck with a girl all around his arm. Like, yeah, and they they end up having a love scene on the highway, and it's just like, okay. I mean, um, I I think of it as a a DB movie in name only. Like, it's not accurate whatsoever. 
in fact, he, in the movie, he jumps, it's daylight and it's a beautiful, you know, day with barely a, a cloud in the sky. It's just, okay. They, they obviously didn't do their research. And <laughs> well, what, his, about, what about Bigfoot versus DB Cooper? Ah, you, <laughs> that's great. I have seen it <laughs> and, uh, I would never recommend it to anybody. It's almost like virtual, like, I don't I can't even explain it. It's like softcore porn without the porn. You know what I mean? And without girls. It's, <laughs> right. It's just a bunch of shirtless dudes running around. Shirtless dudes working out. Like, I, I guess it's a subgenre type of movies. This, the guy who made it, like, I guess all of his movies are kind of like that. Yes. But, I have yeah. a director friend that's aware of the dude's career and says he's notorious for that sort of thing. Right. Uh, so, great poster, but it's very light on Bigfoot and DB Cooper content, which is yeah, interesting. It's awful. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> don't don't bother with it, guys. Don't worry. Uh, I disagree. So, I highly recommend it. So I've taken up the mantle of writing a as accurate as possible take on the DB Cooper hijacking. Um, my screenplay is called Dan Cooper. And it's a a minute by minute procedural of the actual hijacking from the moment it started until they land in, in Reno. And, um, you know, I mix in a lot of real facts, a lot of stories that, um, come right out of the three Oh twos, um, the flight transcripts I try to use, uh, the dialogue as accurately as possible. Um, and again, I, you know, it's a Hollywood movie, so I've taken a few liberties here and there, but I don't think anything that really changes the story dramatically. And so, yeah, I've got that, uh, just finished it, wrapped up my third draft, which, uh, I sent to you and I've sent to Bruce. You guys are the only guys in the Cooper community that have seen it. And, uh, and it's just cause I value you guys feedback. So I love it. I loved it, Rob. I, I want to say, first of all, Whenever I listen to a a podcast, a movie, whatever about DB Cooper, I always fast forward through the hijacking because yeah. I've I've heard it so many times, and I'm like, they're gonna get this detail wrong, and yeah, I just right. don't care. I'm more interested in what they have to say about what's going. on. A great on. example is that is the uh, the HBO Max documentary. They got Cooper sitting on the wrong side of the plane. I'm like, how do you get that detail wrong? <laughs> Yeah, and your script is just the hijacking. There's there's no fluff. There's not a lot of wild speculation or anything like that. It's so accurate. I loved reading some of the obscure names that, uh, you know, eight people would know were accurate. Sure, uh, right. What like Al Jolstein and some of these other people, yeah. uh, NWO crews. It's like but it was only I'm going to get that reference. It's important to me though, because those people were part of the story and it's never been told. You know what I mean? Like not even in the documentaries, they always focus on just the flight crew and suspects. They never really focus on the men and women that were on the ground running around with their heads cut off, trying to save these people's lives. Yeah, I I agree. You You don't hear, I mean, you guess you hear Tina and Florence and, Alice occasionally, uh, Captain Scott, Radizak, but outside of that, what about Al Lee? You know, he was there. He was he was the head pilot of Northwest Orient in Seattle, 
and he was the ground man. He was he was uh, put in charge of coordinating uh, the parachutes and the money, and he's the one that delivered those things to the plane in the detective's car, uh, Owen McKenna, right? Like he handed them off to Tina. His story's never been told. I've never seen an interview with Al Lee. That's fascinating. That guy, like what was going through his mind? Yeah, I, I, I am so impressed with that. Like McKenna, that's a guy that no one really knows, I guess. No one mm-hmm. knows. Even people deep into the vortex. Um, and like I've read his name in the 302s, but yeah, even even myself didn't pay attention to that. So the the detail in this is incredible. I have two of my two things I want to pull from that that I just sure. absolutely loved. You mentioned that in Reno the dogs ate the food. The, oh yeah, that was brought on. <laughs> I love that. That really happened. Great detail. Thank you. Um, Thank you. My other favorite one was on. I believe it's the very last page. You described the gentleman's suit as. A glorious 80s brown suit. <laughs> I, I love that. A glorious 80s brown suit. You know, when you're writing a screenplay, you got to paint the scene with, with words, right? Because your script is the roadmap for the producers and the director to, to tell that story. And so as an artist, I, I have a vision and I just kind of want to make sure people see that. I grew up in the 80s, so I want to make sure that's accurate. I don't think I've ever read a script like that before. Maybe like in high school doing a play or something, but Mm -hmm. on a much shorter, less uh, professional level. Yeah, reading a screenplay is a lot different from reading a manuscript or a book, for sure. Uh, Because there are scene headings, you know, that tell you, is it interior, exterior? Um, There's, there's. Uh, quotes, you know, is the character talking on screen or off screen? Is it a voiceover? So it reads a little different, but I think once you get the hang of it, you get kind of swept up in it. Oh yeah. Cause I started and maybe page three, I started visualizing it as a movie in my head, Yeah, which I mean, it wasn't that hard for me to do because I knew like what the plane looked like, what the people looked like, what the area looked like. So I could just place them right in there. I mean, I watched your movie in my head. Twice now, actually. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm hoping that the second draft that I sent you was better than the first. That's the intent. It, it was a little bit cleaner. I could see that it was, uh, I mean, it's very similar, but it was like more polished. Yeah, that's exactly right. You polish and you edit, you trim, you get rid of the needless stuff. Um, and I got rid of a lot of stuff that was just repeating information. And so we're hoping that this is on... I guess saying going to the movie theater is kind of a little bit weird right now, but I would absolutely love to see this movie get made. Uh, we've had, you know, D.B. Cooper documentaries, some were better than others. Um, and then the movies like Robin, I mentioned are not good. I mean, no offense to treat Williams and Robert Duvall. Uh, that movie's terrible. And it's Bigfoot versus D.B. Cooper. I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, if you want to, smoke a joint and watch that movie it's hilarious. yeah you might you might laugh if you want a better laugh you might want to watch up a paddle or up a whatever that movie was without, without a, paddle. a paddle without a paddle you probably get more joy out of that even though yes. again all the facts are wrong and it takes place in oregon and and this and that but um you know there was in my research um i did find a a movie and i found it on amazon prime called the skyjacker and it looked like 
a low budget, maybe even a college project that somebody made. And it was, it was pretty good. It wasn't perfect. And I could tell they did their research and they probably read some of the flight transcripts. Um, but they got a lot of facts wrong. Like they didn't use Tina's real name. They didn't use, they didn't have the flight engineer. Um, they didn't have, they only had two flight attendants, you know, so there's all these little changes. And Cooper was a, like a 22 year old ginger kid. Like there were some things he had to look past, but it was probably the most entertaining, accurate version. Um, Obviously it's hard to find though. Did they show that at Kiggins at CooperCon? Uh, you know, Dan at the Kiggins, I think I think he actually knows the director of that film. So it might have played there, yeah. I want to say I saw that there. You you probably did. So and and you probably can agree that it's it of any of the Cooper movies out there, that's the one that you probably want to see first. But even then it's it it needs it needs improvement. It needs a Hollywood budget. And it needs to focus not just on the flight crew, but everybody involved. Okay, I found it. It is, it's called The Skyjacker, inspired mm-hmm. by the true story of D.B. Cooper. You can rent it on Amazon Prime for $1.99. Yeah, and you know what? It's worth it. If you're a Cooper fan and you want to watch a movie about it right now, then you could rent that and you'll get your money's worth. You know, two bucks, not, not that bad. There's also another man, another one. It's more of a short film. Oh, gosh, and I think it was called The Man Who Fell from the Sky. And it was more of a Spielberg-style coming of age where a young boy finds Cooper hiding in his barn and they kind of develop a friendship. And then, you know, he, he's got to get away. And um, th- That one is pretty funny. I, I, I would have watch- seen that one also. Yeah, so you got to watch that one with a, kind of a smile on your face because you know, it's kind of cheesy. But did you see it's a documentary? But the Walter Recca one, DB Cooper, uh, is it the real story? The name of their documentary? I have the documentary. I bought it on DVD at the convention. I've got the book. Um, I just haven't brought myself to watch it. It's it's really good. I I mean. People have their opinions on the Rekka story, but it's good. I, I like it. It's told well. I, I, I enjoy the whole ride of that story. And, you know, like we said earlier, these suspects are so interesting. Yeah, they're all whether interesting. They're, yeah, whether they're Cooper or not, I want to hear, I want everyone to know about Barb Dayton. I yeah. want everyone to know about Richard Floyd McCoy. I mean, just insane wild lives, whether yeah, they or have, not the Cooper part is true. Each one has their own unique, fascinating story. And you're so right. Whether they're Cooper or not, they're fun to learn about. Yeah. And, you know, like McCoy, for example, the Cooper part, leave that out. The rest of his life is insane. Uh, Vietnam, highly yeah. decorated war veteran. He's going to school at BYU at the time studying criminal justice when he hijacks the plane and then the National Guard calls him to fly a helicopter to look for himself. Yeah, so so insane. <laughs> that can be a movie all in itself. You could strip it of the Cooper stuff and it would still be great. I wonder if the if you could make a movie about McCoy because his widow sued and won the movie rights for D.B. Cooper, the real McCoy. 
Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if, well, that's where you get, that's where you get into uh, the tricky part of Hollywood and, and rights to people's stories. Right. And um, like, you don't need the rights to a person's life story if they are a major public figure and all of the information you're using is in the public knowledge, right? Like, and that's where I kind of skirt the line is I'm not drawing on anything but the FBI 302s and the transcripts to tell my version of the story. Um, and I did, I tried to avoid going into any territory that was super different than what's been reported on or, or acknowledged as being true. Um, but you know, you could get yourself in some hot water if all of a sudden you're saying Tina Mucklow was in on the story or in on the, on the heist, you know what I mean? Like that can get you into a pickle. Is that something you worry about? I don't worry about it. No. Um, because I have all my sources I've drawn from and can point right to it. Like, this is where I'm pulling this from. This is where I got this idea of my story. And um, it's all public knowledge. It's all in the FBI 302s, which are public. And um, and also, I've taken a lot of uh, idea and dialogue from the actual uh, interviews of these people, like Dwayne Ingram, for that matter. Like, in the part of my script at the beginning, it starts on the beach at Tina's bar where Brian Ingram finds the money and that's all public information. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to think, I don't, I don't feel like anyone is painted in an unflattering light in your show. You know, I got some feedback from Bruce uh, on the first draft. It's, you know, I painted some of the uh, uh, passengers in a certain light because I needed them to be a certain way. And um, he gave me some nice feedback and so I trim some of those to paint them to be more realistic and more human and not so caricature. Yeah. So uh, bottom line is we just want to tell a really unique human story. And uh, so our next step now is uh, we've submitted or I've submitted to a bunch of screenwriting competitions. I submitted uh, the script to an industry website known as the Blacklist. Um, and for people that don't know, it's basically a website where you can uh, put up your script, get it read by professionals in the industry, and get it rated. And if you score a certain way or high enough, then you get blasted out to the industry. And um, so on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the best, I got rated a 7 on the script. To me, that's pretty good. And it's only going to get better as I dial it in and, and make it even better. So um, right now I've got it, I've got a uh, professional Hollywood screenwriter who I'd made friends with many, many, many years ago. And I hit him up to see if he'd read it. He agreed to. And I'll take his professional notes and we'll dial it in and go even more. One thing you should know, and it's kind of funny, is I actually finished this script probably about two years ago. And I immediately sent it out to um, my connections in the industry. And a friend of mine who's a director optioned it immediately and shopped it around for um, a few months and got incredible feedback for it. And he came back to me and said, Rob, I want to make this movie, but I've just been told that if, if I bring this movie to and try to get it made, that the people with the money are going to take it away from me and give it to somebody with a little bit more high profile uh, resume. So that's, you know, now I just need to get it sold. 
What would be your wildest dream for this script? The wildest dream would be Steven Spielberg knocks on my door and says, Rob, I love your script. We're best friends now, and I'm going to make your movie. I like the best friends part. Yeah, well, you know. He, might, he's, might as well. <laughs> might as well, yeah. We might as well get to know each other. We're going to work together. If, let's say, it goes to Netflix, is sure. part of you sad that you don't get to see it in the theater? So that's an interesting question, Darren, because I'm a, I'm a movie guy. I mean – I grew up in the 80s watching the best movies ever made, and I've got a home theater that's decorated with movie posters and and movie props, and I've just I've always been a cinema dude. But the simple truth is, cinema is changing, and movie theaters unfortunately are dying. Um, I, I mean, you've spent time in Vancouver. There's a really, or was a really awesome movie theater chain called Cinetopia, and it was, it was beautiful. You go in, and it was like living room style. You could put your feet up. You could order food from your seat, and they bring it to you. It was just a glorious way to watch a movie. Yeah, they went out of business. Like fifteen years ago, it was a huge deal. Yeah. There wasn't anything else like that. Yeah, right. And and now it's out of business, and AMC took it over. And last time I went to that theater. I walked into the bathroom and it was just filthy. I ordered a, a drink, which you now have to go fill yourself. And the the soda machine was just disgusting. And then you go into the theater and it's like sticky as can be. And just like, the, I feel like, I feel like theater owners and maybe just the corporations have really lost sight of the, the wonderful feeling of going to the movies. And now it's just a dirty experience. So. And then you add COVID on top of that. Not, not too many people want to go to them. I want this movie to play in the theater. I mean, that's that's my ultimate dream. That's the nostalgia in me wants it to see it on the big screen. Um, if it made it to Netflix as my first project, it wouldn't hurt my feelings. <laughs> uh, not at all. Uh, is it the, uh, the best way for me to see it? I mean, I like I said, I'd prefer to see it on the big screen, but... At this point, in this day and age, I'd see it on any screen. I'd even be okay if they were just like, you know what, Rob, we're just going to show this on the airline um, flights on the back of those little seats, you know? Like, I'd be okay with that, too. Yeah, I, I asked that question because I, I feel the exact same way as you. I, I love going to the movie theater. Um, I, I love those small theaters. I mean, I remember going to uh, the Joy Theater in Tigard. As yes, as I've, been, because, I've been there. Uh, they used to have, like, dollar movies in the summertime. And so yeah. my, my grandma would take us, me and my sister, and, you know, we'd go see some second run movie for a dollar and have popcorn. Dude, I saw the movie Cocktail with Tom Cruise and Die Hard, double feature in that theater, back when those movies were just released. One of the greatest memories of my life. Such a great little theater. Is the Joy Theater still open? Oh, heck yeah, it is. I mean, maybe maybe not right now with the COVID world, but... Um, yeah, my friend Brett, um, the director who optioned the screenplay, um, he premiered his movie there, um, or, or had a showing there for cast and crew called movie called pretty broken, pretty great movie. If you guys haven't seen it. Yeah. So yeah, it's still kicking, man. Little mom and pop one screen theaters are still alive out there. Support them. Yeah. And and like the Kiggins theater. I mean, the, when you walk in the front door of that place, it's beautiful and oh it's could, one of those you just old feel the school. history yeah so much history yes 
Uh, I met with Dan not too long ago because he was re-recording his D.B. Cooper radio drama. He wanted me to be D.B. Cooper. And so I met with him and he took me upstairs and behind the, um, the, the booth where the projection booth, he took me to his office. It just is a magical place. You can feel it in your bones when you walk through there. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I had a movie, it would be, you know, if it only, only went to Netflix, it'd be so sad. Um, because yeah, I agree with you. I do have that, that love for cinema. I was talking to, I have a home theater as well, but I was talking to my friend about it and he's like, I don't care about the movies anymore. I have a, a big TV at my house. I'd rather just watch it at home. Yeah. And you know, I feel that I got, I got a 60 inch TV and I've got the 5.1 surround sound and it looks good and it sounds good, but you lose out on that communal experience, right? Like you, you go into a movie, not knowing what to expect. And you know, like right now I'm looking at my Ghostbusters poster. Like I remember as a kid walking into that theater, having no idea what to expect and being surrounded by all these people with the same feeling and then have that movie come up and wash over you and the communal experience of it. it it's just, there's nothing like that. So you lose that when it goes to something like Netflix. Um, but at the same time, the way people are watching entertainment, you know, it's just changing and you've got to change with it. Ghostbusters two was the first movie I saw in the theater. Oh, nice. <laughs> Mine was E.T. All right, Rob, what have... Oh, I know what we haven't covered yet. In your script, I made a note of this. Okay. You talk about the brown paper bag that he brings on the plane. Yes. Can we talk about what you theorized was in there in the script? Yeah, sure. Like, I, I, don't, think, um, I don't think there's any harm in that because it's not like a major plot spoiler, but I, I decided I'm going to answer what I thought was in that bag. And so... I started thinking, well, what would somebody bring with them that had parachute experience that would be small enough to go unnoticed and uh, but would be useful enough that you would need it for your jump? And one of them was a pair of goggles for skydiving um, because you know, obviously he had his sunglasses, but I'm thinking you jump out of a plane and I've never jumped out of a plane. Maybe this is a question for Eric. Um, but I thought if he jumped out wearing his sunglasses, they're going to fly off, right? Like they're just going to get whipped off or, or something. So I, I just speculated that he probably brought some sort of parachute goggles. Um, that way, as he's, uh, descending through the clouds, you know, he's, he's not tearing up and he can see. Um, and then I also, uh, speculated that he brought, um, a wrist altimeter so that he can descend at night and kind of have an idea of where he is as to relation to the ground. I love it. I love that you put that, the brown paper sack, the manila, whatever he has got. Uh, I've heard people say it was green, but I, you know, I like brown paper sack pretty much. Um, I've talked to a bunch of people about this, you know, what's, what was in there? If you could yeah. speculate what was in there. And when I talk to people who actually, have jumped out of planes a bunch of times. They all say the exact same thing. Goggles and gloves. They're like jumping in a suit. No big deal. It doesn't really matter sure. what you're wearing. Um, you have to have goggles and it'd be real nice to have gloves. Sure. So I've always thought it has to be goggles and gloves is what he had in there. I mean, that just is the most logical thing. 
Um, and who's to say he wasn't wearing like some long thermal underwear under his, under his clothes too. Like we just really don't know. Yeah. And I mean, you and I both have lived in the area when people talk about, oh, it was so freezing cold and he would have died. That's, that's not true. I mean, it wasn't as bad as they make it out to be. (laughs) No. Yeah. A rainy day in November in Clark or Cowlitz County. Uh, yeah, it's cold and miserable, but you'll be fine. What was it like 40 degrees when you jumped that night? Yeah. And you know, I was just out and about, we just had a major snowstorm. Like, I mean, it's over now and everything's somewhat melted, but, uh, I was out the other day having dinner with my wife and I wasn't even wearing a coat. Like, and it was like 44 degrees and I'm like, man, it feels kind of warm today. So when you're from the Northwest, that kind of weather is pretty normal. You're not, you're not going to, um, be too concerned about it. But I can tell, like, if somebody comes up from California, they're going to want their winter coat. Oh, yeah, definitely. And <laughs> the it, it was, there was a storm out. Uh, no, it was raining. And if yeah. you live in that area, raining means that water is falling from the sky. That's all uh, it is. It's not a storm. It yeah. just, it was raining. It's always raining. That doesn't mean a storm. Uh, other places, I mean, like Idaho or Colorado, for example, other places I lived, it doesn't rain. When it does rain, it's a storm. But uh, in Vancouver, uh, it just rains yeah, every it's day. Yeah, just a drizzle. Yeah, you, you, need, drizzle. you don't even think about it. You don't. It's just, it is what it is. It's just part of life here. And I often think about the same thing about Dwayne Ingram and his family having that river day, which I believe was in um, a cold month as well. February. Yeah, and people are like, well, he was out at the river having a day. And it was like, well, you don't realize February is pretty cold. They weren't out having a swim. <laughs> they might be spending the day at the river, but they were probably bundled up pretty warm. Oh, yeah. You know, and I've done the same thing. I, I lived in Woodland. I used to go to the bottoms all the time there. And you would go in February. It would be freezing cold. You're not going to you know, take your shoes off and go wade in the water. But... I mean, when you live there, you don't have a choice. It's going to rain anyways, so you might as well go outside. Yeah, right. All right, Rob, what have we not covered yet? Gosh, I don't know, man. Do you have a Do you have a favorite scene, or was there something in the script that we were like, well, that didn't happen. Why did he write that? That's what I'm curious about. I don't ask why did you write that. The only thing, it's uh, you developed the relationship between Cooper and Tina, and... That I really liked because I I reading parts of the conversation like there's no evidence this happened. I mean, sure, it could have definitely. Honestly, that is that, that relationship is still developing um, in the script, and it's actually the biggest feedback that I've received from professional reviewers on the blacklist. Is we want to know more about Dan Cooper. We want to know more about Tina, and and the struggle for me as a writer and an entertainer is. That's the one black hole that isn't really documented. So that's where a lot of the conjecture comes from. You know, what did those two talk about? What were, you know, what was Tina trying to get out of Dan? I assume, and it's kind of how I portray her, is that she was kind of like a little mini detective, prodding and poking and keeping calm and trying to learn taking um, you know, notice of what he's wearing and his, the cigarette stains on his fingers. Um, so that's, I just try to think logically about if I was in that situation or if my wife was in that situation, what and how would they act? 
what kind of information would they need or try to get from Dan Cooper? And you just go with that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, the the one question that everyone knows she asks is, do you have a grudge against our airline? Yeah. And I, I agree. You know, she was trying to figure out who this guy was because she knew she was going to have to answer for it. And she was being playful too, you know, like she, she opens it up initially cracking a joke saying, well, you know, the airline has strict policies about going to Cuba. You're not going to be able to bring home any drink or cigars, you know, it's just against policy. And I think she's trying to comfort him and put him at ease and also get information. Yeah, that's interesting. It would be hard to, uh, I guess I didn't think about it that way. People telling you they want to know more about Dan Cooper when there isn't anything they do. to say about him. Yeah. They, and that's, like I said, the biggest critique is they want to know what happened to him. And it's like, well, you know, as much as I do <laughs> about what <laughs> happened after, like, right. And you know I've what? Read I tried, 25 books on this, but you know, as much as me. I tried to answer what happened to Dan Cooper in my first draft. And I, I wrote, um, lengthy scenes about him parachuting and landing and burying the money and um, burning the uh, the briefcase. And there's just no evidence of any of it. And I just thought, you know what? It's better to leave it as a mystery because no matter what I come up with, it's probably not going to be real or realistic. And it's just not what really happened. And the mystery is greater than making up an answer. So I leave it open-ended. What happened to him? You tell me. I was going to bring that up. I, I loved that. In, in the, I guess it's your third version that I got the second time? Um, yeah, it's the, um, it, it's, it's the third. I call it the third draft. Because the first draft was the kitchen sink. I just threw everything in it. The second draft was more of a polish and a few revisions. And then the third draft is where I really went in like a surgeon and started building a unique and interesting relationship between um, the dialogue with Dan and Tina. But the way it ends in in your latest version, you let me read, is the way it really ends. We don't know. That's it. We don't know. And I I do think that's a better ending unless, I mean – yeah, that's that's the that's the ending I want. I mean, you could come up with he lands and he was able to dig a hole, put the parachute and the briefcase in it, burn it, throw some dirt on top of it, yep. get out of there. But and then the Duke boys pull up in the General Lee and he hops across the hood and jumps in and they take it off down the highway. Yeah, I, I thought it was weird when they started racing Ecto one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so. I just thought it was better to leave it as the mystery because that's that's where we're at today. Like it leaves us where we're at today and it tells you all the information that's really out there. And now it's up to us to piece it together. And I, I know I hope this movie gets made because it's really important. Uh, it it really changed the airline industry for the better. And and obviously we continue to feel its lasting effects today. Um, with airline security and, and, and all that. And I think, you know, Tina in that Rolling Stone article even says that that instance was so important for history that, um, that it will forever be remembered as, as the instigating instance that led up to the attack of 9-11. You know what I mean? Like, 
It was that first act of air piracy that was really successful. And it was the model to which every um, air criminal since has kind of tried to try to own up to. Um, Dan, of course, the only person to ever get away with it. Yeah, it is wild back then. You could just uh, no identification and walk on the plane with a bomb. I did research because I was curious when metal detectors first became a thing. And my understanding and what I've read is that there was the first one kind of showed up in and around Southern California, San Diego, maybe. And it wasn't a law or a regulation that it had to be there. They just put it in and um, it just, you know, obviously it needed to be everywhere. Yeah, I, I had uh, Brendan Kerner on the show, and he said, you know, there were times where you could just walk onto the plane and pay for your ticket when you were already on there. Yeah, amazing. Like, that's how chillax they were about about security back then. Just walk onto the plane. Oh, you don't have a ticket? Oh, it's it's $24. Well, we just, you're wearing a suit. You must obviously be a gentleman. <laughs> I like that math. <laughs> All right, Rob, if, uh, if people want to see what you got going on, if they want to check out the Northwest escape experience, if they want to tell you that you don't know anything, if they want to tell you you got everything right, where can they do that? Uh, well, you could always reach me on, uh, Twitter and Facebook, Twitter. It's at Rob Bertrand, R O Bertrand 77. And then just hit me up on Facebook, just Rob Bertrand. And then you can go to NorthwestEscapeExperience.com, NWEscapeExperience.com, to book an in-person escape room and play the Operation D.B. Cooper room. Or you can book it as a virtual experience and play with your friends and family from all over the world from the comfort of your own home. Um, You can just, again, reach us on our website. And, uh, and I hope you do. Like I really hope all D.B. Cooper enthusiasts at some point play this game. Uh, cause it's not going to be around forever. You know, we're, we're starting now to, it's been open for like four years and, um, it's not going to last forever. So play it while you can. Yeah. And how many DB Cooper themed experiences are there? One where the guy actually knows the case and put a bunch of Easter eggs in there for you. I did discover one other DB Cooper room. I don't know if it's still open, but it was in Idaho of all places. Really? Yeah. And a funny story. I was on my way back from Idaho. And my wife and I stopped at a gas station to fuel up and to use restroom and all that. And we meet this couple and they're like, hey, I, uh, I see your hoodie there because it has our logo on it. We started talking and it turns out they owned the other D.B. Cooper um, escape room. So it's chance meeting on the highways. Serendipity. Wow. Synchronicity, I guess. How did I not know there was a D.B. Cooper themed escape room in Idaho? In, Very good uh, question. Voice area? I'm not exactly sure where I, I looked them up way back in the day. So I could have told you then, but now I'm not so sure, but, and, and it's quite possible lot, that Rob. Might, it might not even be opening more. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but if it is go play it because uh, I'm sure it's fun. And um, I'm a big advocate of supporting local escape rooms. So, well, I'm a big advocate of supporting you because you're into this case as much as me and reading that script. I, I told my wife, I want to see this movie so bad. And also, I was a little bit jealous that you wrote it, too. Because whenever anyone else has a D.B. Cooper project, I'm like, why wasn't that me? That should have been me. Uh, Well, the feeling's mutual, buddy, because I don't know if... I I think I told you this before, 
back before I met you, I was, I was working on a podcast and um, I really wanted to do a DB Cooper podcast. And then you popped up and I listened to it and I'm like, well, there it goes. I can't do it now because it's already been done and it's been done great. <laughs> so um, I just moved on to my next project. And so in a, in a roundabout way, dude, you're responsible for this. Okay, well then I take full credit. <laughs> I I expect top billing, so it should I should be above your name. Oh, one last thing, and I don't know if you picked up on this in the new draft or not. I was absolutely flabbergastedly amazed that the name Tina actually means river. Tina means river. Yes. The uh the the actual meaning of the name um Christina um the full version obviously is a, is a Christian name and, and uh, has a different meaning, but the shortened version, the name Tina is an old English word for river. And the fact that the money was found at Tina bar by a river to me was very fascinating. It's one of those interesting synchronicities of the story. Um, And so I I put a little bit of that in the, in the, in the script because I just thought it was too, too, Interesting not to include it. I mean, all the coincidences in this case. The Dan Cooper, the Tina Bar. How many things can be a coincidence before it's not? I don't know. It could be one of those instances of reading into things or or, or signs that aren't really connected. Uh, but it sure is interesting, and it makes for a good story. It sure does, and I hope I'm watching this movie in the theater in no time. Well, the time has never been better, man. If you are a movie producer and you want to capitalize on the 50th anniversary, the time is now to strike. Let's do it. Hell yeah. Rob, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's my pleasure, man. I've been looking forward to this all week and big fan of your podcast, dude. Keep up the great work. You're blazing some incredible trails here and I'm very proud of you, buddy. I'm proud of you too, Rob. If you were listening to the show, I know you would get a kick out of his Operation D.B. Cooper escape room. He's just as big a fan of the case as I am, and it shows. Like we said, there are a ton of Easter eggs in there for true fans of the case, which if you're willing to listen to me talk about it, you must be. If you're in the Portland-Vancouver area, Northwest Escape Experience is just off Highway 99 on 78th Street, Or if you're a thousand miles away like me, you can do it virtually like I did with friends and family from anywhere in the world. Visit Northwest, that's nwescapeexperience.com for all the info. You'll find links to it all in the show notes. Also, if you talk to Hollywood, let them know you want them to start making this movie right away. Are you D.B. Cooper? Do you know who he was? Did we get something wrong? Are we doing great? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Rob Bertrand for hooking me and my family up with a great time during a boring pandemic. Thank you to Russell Colbert for hooking me up with years of his labor for free. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex.